Hey everyone, and a very big welcome to Flightcast, the one and only Infinite Flight podcast. Infinite Flight is a mobile flight simulator available for iOS and Android, and on this show we talk about the sim and real-world aviation. With me today, as always, is Mr. Mark Skyhawk Heavy Denton. Mark, you did something rather extraordinary today. Yeah, what? What? <laughs> what, what did I do? You're thinking, oh, I always do extraordinary things. What must I I know. I about? mean, anytime I wake up, it's extraordinary, so... <laughs> You, I'm proud of you. You went into Guitar Center and you came out with nothing. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's incredible. That was a struggle, though, man. I, I'm not even going to lie about it. That was definitely a struggle. The fact that you didn't go into Guitar Center and come out with a drum kit is, it's it's commendable. They had, man, they had a, uh, they had a set of uh, DW, they had a kit, a DW kit that was all maple. Mm. And uh, it was the uh, that burnt toast color, almost like a, a sunburst. Oh yeah. Oh man, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. But you know, I left my checkbook at the house, and I didn't have forty two hundred dollars in cash on me. Well, maybe next time. I appreciate you turning up on time for the interview. That's <laughs> what I do, man. All right, Mark, why don't you give us a quick little infinite flight update, what's going on lately in the FDS world? Well, uh, this week, um, I didn't put out a tutorial on Monday um, because as of Friday, I was sick, basically from Monday or from Friday to Monday. Um, a lot of people are asking about using the auto land or the approach button. Uh, so, you know, just trying to uh, get that worked in. Uh, another one that one of our controllers i think recommended was uh on how to properly give way when you know given the instruction to give way to another aircraft mm, right you know what what's a pilot what does that mean to a pilot so uh just a couple of those that i'll be distributing here for too long okay and uh for our listeners if you're if you're not sure what we're talking about mark releases uh, uh tutorial videos for uh pilots since he is the pilot community manager for uh, infinite flight and if you want to see any of those if you're new to the sim you can go to youtube.com slash infinite flight app and you can check out all of those videos and uh we are getting uh amazingly close to the to a new update again uh yep. you know don't don't ask us when it is because we don't know it's coming and uh it's going to be great so I just I just basically give the response because you know we get so many messages on our Instagram, so many PMs, direct messages, whatever you want to call them. But when's the update coming out? When's the update? Well, I tell you what, when you see the update uh, notification on the App Store or Google Play for Infinite Flight, and it says new aircraft, that's when it's out. That's when it's out. That's when you'll know when the update's coming out. That's it. Well, why don't we answer a couple of uh, questions that people had on the forum? We we often ask questions, uh, ask for questions for an episode, and um, we've got some that are are C one thirty related. And as we know already, that the new update will contain uh, the new aircraft, the C one thirty. There'll be a few a variants of it, and uh, so we've got a couple of questions. Mark, I don't even know if you can answer these, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Um, 
JDAG2004 asked, uh, will there be multiple gray libraries with just the text changed? Because you guys have shown a few libraries already, including, I think you showed Fat Albert, and then a couple of maybe military libraries. So that's probably where that question is coming from. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have multiple libraries. Um, The... One of the problems is that there's so many libraries for the C-130, you know, and so we're, we're putting out different variants and, and, you know, we're going to have multiple libraries, uh, you know, and, and we will probably, you know, not all the libraries are going to be in it initially, but, you know, we'll probably add more down the road like we do with all the other aircraft. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, there'll be, there'll be plenty of libraries initially um, that, will make people happy. I mean, there's, there's a wide, wide range of libraries for people to choose from. So, you know, it, 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 it definitely won't be boring. That's for sure. So there will be many gray libraries because, uh, yeah, well, there's so many, you know, you know, on the J model, um, hell on the J model, most of the libraries are gray now, you know, so, uh, um, yeah, there'll be, there'll be multiple J libraries with, you know, that'll have, uh, have, you know, different countries represented, you know, stuff like that. So, okay. Uh, Tranquil Skyflyer asked, will the C-130 storage, uh, payload area be detailed and or accessible? Well, we've shown on Instagram how people, <clears throat> how we can lower the ramp door. And so, you know, you'll be able to look inside the ramp door as far as the detail. I'll just leave that for people to uh, to make for their own judgment as far as how detailed it is. So, um, you know, people are not going to be dissatisfied, I don't believe. Yeah, agreed. Sure, we'll have those who are, but yeah, it, it a lot of work has gone into this aircraft. Cool. Anything else you will care to add before we get into uh, the interview today? I, I tell you, one of the best ones, of course, the Coast Guard Library, which we've shown and is my personal favorite. But honestly, man, uh, you know, we posted on our Facebook page the uh, the AC-130. Yeah. It's pretty, it, it's pretty awesome. It is. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. So. Yeah, there's going to be some surprising ones, too. There's one that uh, you and I were flying around in last night that was... Uh, yeah, yeah, that one that one looked amazing. Very, very that cool. That one looked really good. And uh, once the update yeah, comes we'll out, we'll mention which one. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, Mark, I'm really excited to get into our interview today with today's guest. Uh, as we continue to talk about the C-130 in anticipation of its addition to Infinite Flight, of course, your dad kept coming up. And uh, so today uh, we have Senior Chief Neil Denton, who's retired from the U.S. Coast Guard and served as a crew member on the C-130 for over 20 years. He's joining us today with Mark in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, Mr. Denton, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, I'd just love to start... (laughs) Go ahead, Mark. (laughs) Yeah, I I said, well, he lives here, so of course it's nice to be here. Mom hadn't kicked him out yet, so that's good. Excellent. Uh, I'd I'd love to start with a, just a brief history of how you got into aviation. Do you do you have the same passion uh, for it that Mark does? And and how did you how'd you get started? Well, to be honest with you, Jason, uh, I didn't even know the Coast Guard had airplanes until I got to boot camp and saw all these airplanes and helicopter pictures on the wall. 
Um, and, uh, but I've always loved aviation. Uh, not so sure my passion for it is as strong today as it used to be, but, uh, Mark's uh, passion is very strong. Um, but, uh, how my brief history of how I got into aviation is when I first got out of boot camp in 1968, uh, my first duty station was the Coast Guard Cutter Cherokee out of, uh, Little Creek, Virginia. And, uh, we had to, I was on there for two years and we, uh, rode a hurricane out during a SAR case, um, out in the Atlantic. And I told myself then, Neil's not doing this for 20 years. <laughs> so I got to digging around and, uh, uh, talked to some people and I went up to headquarters in Portsmouth and, uh, uh, talked to a captain that was a, uh, a Coast Guard pilot. And... <laughs> He told me some ropes to do and, and uh, the tests, some testing I needed to do and physicals and that type stuff. And uh, I finally got accepted into uh, ASM uh, school. And uh, then that's where it all started. Okay, so when you uh, were in boot camp, like you said, and, and you'll have to forgive me, Mark, you can help me out with some of the terminology here, uh, maybe. But when you're in, you're in boot camp for... Uh, the Coast Guard, and you said you didn't even realize they had airplanes. So when you joined, what was the what was the compelling reason for you to do that? Well, um, I was I grew up on a, a farm in North Carolina, a little small town called Clinton, and uh, uh, a buddy of mine that I went to uh, high school, graduated high school with, and uh, went to a, a two year business school with there in Clinton. Um, we were talking and he said, well, what do you think about the Coast Guard? And I said, what's the Coast Guard? <laughs> I thought it was part of the National Guard. But uh, anyway, we went and talked to our recruiter and uh, uh, I liked what he had to say. And, and the next thing I know, we were in Moorhead City, North Carolina, being sworn in and put on a bus and bus from Moorhead City, North Carolina to Cape May, New Jersey uh, for Coast Guard boot camp. We went in on the buddy system, but uh, – uh, once we graduated boot camp, you know, he went his way. And uh, of course I went my way, you know, after they don't keep you together your whole tour. Uh, it's just during boot camp, you know, but I don't even know if they still do that. That was back in 1968, but a lot's changed. Uh, a lot's changed since then with all the boot camps. But, um, so that, that's basically why I went to the Coast Guard. It was actually uh, my friend's idea. Uh, we haven't received our draft notices at that time, so I guess we were ahead of the game. Okay, and is and and does that exempt you from from being drafted in in other ways? Oh, like, is this this is a branch of the military? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, the smallest uh, service of all the all the services, uh, but we are we're not part of DOD. Okay. Uh, we used to be when I went in. We were Department of the Treasury. Then it, we were transferred to Department of Transportation, and now the Coast Guard is part of the uh, Homeland Security. Okay. Um, but we're not listed as DOD, um, but we are considered a military branch right now. Well, <clears throat> when I first went in, one of the big things they talked about is the whole Coast Guard that spread all over the world, and number is smaller than the New York City Police Department. Uh, at that time, there was like 32,000 active duty personnel, officers and enlisted in the Coast Guard. Now, they're a little over 40,000. But uh, uh, I thought that was pretty unique um, to be that small. 
and spread so thin. Uh, I do know that uh, one uh, rating in the Coast Guard does about, and don't mean to ruffle any feathers over on the Navy side, but one rating in the Coast Guard does about four or five jobs of what it, uh, what one you know what the Navy does. And over, it takes four guys in the Navy to do uh, the same job that the Coast Guard does with one. So, okay. you know, and, and by being spread so thin, that's, that's the way we had to do it. Okay. But, Sir, you don't have to worry about angering the, anyone in any branch of the U S military. I'm a, I'm a, you're talking to a pacifist, so I've already angered all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but, now, but I, I do. What I, what I'd like to elaborate on what he said sure. was that, you know, it was not part of the DOD, which is department of defense. Now, dear, it was department of transportation when you ran it for, for all those years. Well, when I first went in, it was Department of Treasury. Right, but then it changed to transportation. Right. But during wartime, it comes under the Navy. It comes under the Navy, which, yeah. of course, would be DOD. Uh, right. Okay, right. Okay, got it. Okay, cool. Um, now, yeah, you can explain things especially a Canadian <laughs> See, this is the this is the great part of having uh, someone like me on the show is that I ask the questions that some people just need asked, <laughs> you know, because they don't know. Uh, and somebody on the other side of the world listening, which we do have, uh, might benefit from those answers. So it's good, all good. Um, what tell us more a little bit more about working for the Coast Guard? Of course, we have the Coast Guard here in in Canada, and we have a base. Um, I'm on a, a a bay just off of Lake Huron. So we have a base actually, uh, in my port in our town. So, um, is that similar to, would you think that's similar to the Coast Guard in other countries and, and Canada being so close to your country, we were bordered. Um, yeah, would those be similar? Well, uh, I, I don't know that much about the Canadian Coast Guard, but I would think they would be very similar. Um, the our code, the U.S. Coast Guard is uh, big on drug interdiction, um, fisheries, uh, a, a lot of big time fishery patrols up in Alaska and places like that, yeah. um, and uh, search and rescue. Well, search and rescue, from what I understand, um, is not as heavy in the Coast Guard as it used to be. It's still there, and there's still quite a bit of it. But it used to be that was one of the main focuses was search and rescue. But uh, 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 I, I retired in 1994, so a lot has changed okay. uh, you know, since I retired. So I can only speak for when I was in. <laughs> okay, sure. I really don't know what they're doing now. <laughs> well, speaking of speaking of when you were in, let's before you get to the C-130, you've got about what ten years uh, serving initially. No, um, well, no, I was in for two years uh, when I got. Aviation. Oh, okay, got it. So, what were what I, were some of your roles early I, on then? Well, I was on the ship, uh, the Coast Guard Cutter Cherokee, uh, and there's a little funny story about that. I reported aboard on a Sunday afternoon, and back then they could wear beards and all that kind of stuff, but not out of boot camp. You didn't have a beard. You didn't have any hair on top of your head. <laughs> right. But uh, you know, you go up the gangway and. You, you learn all that in boot camp about saluting the flag and, and saluting the officer of the deck and asking permission to come aboard and all that. Well, I reported aboard on a Sunday afternoon. The only thing going through my head was to do this thing right. So I saluted the flag, and, yeah, there was a guy standing there. I saluted him, asked permission to come to board. And I, I looked over on the fantail, and I saw all these guys out there in cutoffs and no shirt. Now, it was Sunday, okay, so they, 
they weren't doing ship's work, but they were laying out there on the fan tail with beards and no shirts on and cut off shorts and all. And I actually looked up at the yard arm to see if there was a skull and crossbone flag up there. I thought it was a pirate ship. <laughs> <laughs> and had it, I mean, it was an old ship. Yeah, well, the Cutter Cherokee used to belong to the Navy, which a lot, back in those days, a lot of stuff, we got hand-me-downs. Um, and the Navy decommissioned it. It was built in 1938. And the Navy decommissioned it, and we're going to tow it out to sea and use it for target practice. And the Coast Guard, from what I understand, got wind of it and paid the Navy a dollar for it. And it was transferred to the Coast Guard. And, of course, the Coast Guard put a lot of money in it to refurbish it and uh, get it seaworthy again. And uh, from what I understand, it was decommissioned around 1984. And uh, it's razor blades now, I guess. But uh, but anyway, uh, to answer your question, I was on on the Cherokee for two years. And. Then I went to aviation, and I spent 24 years in aviation. Now, the first 20 years in aviation, uh, the majority of that was C-130s. Whenever you want me to, I'll tell you my first aircraft. But uh, uh, anyway, after 20 years in the 130, I was transferred to Mobile, Alabama in 1990. And, of course, Mobile does not have any C-130s. They just get, they, at that time, they had Falcons and, and uh, helicopters. And uh, so I had to qualify in the Falcon uh, my last four years in the Coast Guard. So that's why, you know, four years in Mobile, 20 years in C-130s, and two years on a ship. And that, that was my 26 years in the service. Okay, awesome. Twenty six. All right. So, well, let's let's move on to the the C one thirty then. Um, how did that? How did you get to be working on that aircraft? Well, my first duty station out of A school. Uh, well, I had two A schools. One in Lake Curse, New Jersey, and from there I went to uh, Ordnance School down in uh, Naval Air Station, Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, and then my first Coast Guard duty station was Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Uh, my first aircraft that they put me in was the HU-16, the old goat. And, uh, uh, you know, it was an amphibious plane. Um, I loved it. The it was loud. And, yeah, it was loud and obnoxious, but I loved the water landings. It was pretty exciting. And then my chief came to me one day. I had 372 hours in a goat. And uh, my chief came to me one day and said, how would you like to transit? over to C-130s. Well, I'd been talking to some of the C-130 guys, and I, I found out what they did. Basically, they went all over the world, and I jumped at the chance. So uh, if he hadn't asked me, I would have probably, you know, tried to get over there myself eventually, but he kind of speeded up the process after he asked me that I want to do it, and I said, sure, I'd love to do it. So uh, that's how I got into C-130s. Okay. Um, let's uh, let's dive right into uh, what in the world your job was, and that that was the that was the biggest question that we had from the community on the Infinite Flight Forum was, what what did you do on the C one thirty? And and initially, when Mark had said, oh, this was when Mark several episodes ago, months ago, um, you said he, my my dad worked on the C one thirty, and I I assumed back then that that meant that you were flying one. Uh, which is not the case, and we had some people assuming that too. So what was your role on that airplane? Well, I started out as a scanner, and basically what that is is the guy in the back of the airplane, well, you're outside for engine starts and, you know, holding on to the fire bottles and all this kind of stuff. And then once 
the plane starts and you get inside, close crew entrance door. Uh, from the 245 bulkhead, which uh, separates the flight deck from the cargo compartment, uh, uh, the scanner pretty much is kind of runs a show back there as far as uh, checking hydraulic, you know, just looking for leaks or uh, looking out the search windows and stuff at the engines time you know from time to time making sure there's no f visible fuel leaks uh you know just basically covering the whole airplane uh from time to time and if there's a problem you report it to the flight engineer uh, and the pilot but uh i started out as a scanner then uh, i got into the drop master syllabus and uh, became a drop master and then uh, i was asked to go to see or not ask i was basically to go to Loadmaster School. Um, I got a little story there if you got time for it. We do have time for it, but before you get to that story, let's back up for people, dum-dums like me, who don't know what a drop master is and and tell me what that is. Okay, well, we carried a, a bunch of equipment in the back of the airplane, back of the C-130, uh, dewatering pumps, uh, MA-2 kits, which are two life rafts and three equipment containers, uh, so it's a five-package deal separated by 210-foot uh, trail line between each package. So you had a pretty good string out there. Um, and the purpose of that was uh, if you had a boat that was sinking or something like that, you, you drop this MA-2 kit on the pilot demand, uh, command, and uh, it strings out uh, over 1,000 feet, I guess, or I had to do the math. I can't remember. It's been a while. Maybe eight, a little over 800 feet. And you drop it downwind so the rafts will inflate. These 20-man life rafts on each end of the string or line will inflate and encircle the vessel. That's that's the purpose of it. I mean, that's that's what it's designed to do. Uh, Dewatering pumps, uh, if you've got a vessel taking on water, uh, we can come and drop you a pump. And, I mean, it's a Briggs & Stratton engine, uh, you know, a couple gallons of gas in it. And we just try to keep you afloat so they can get a Coast Guard cutter over there or, or a Coast Guard helicopter if you're close enough to shore. Um, but, you know, it's just uh, well, I've dropped mail. I mean, back in those days, uh, they've had uh, Ocean Station, uh, these big ships sit out there in the middle of the Atlantic and just waiting for something to happen, you know. Uh, and we'd get these barrels, these 55-gallon barrels and rig them up with parachutes and pack them full of mail for the crew on the ship. And, uh, of course, official mail, too. And we'd just go out in the middle of the Atlantic and just drop the mail to them. Would you and, drop uh, it course, uh, on the ship? It. No, we dropped it outside the ship. They lower a lifeboat and go get it. Okay, got but it. But the boat, the barrels floated, and of course they were, you know, lowered down by parachute. So uh, it, it was no, we wouldn't take a chance. So what if we had a streamer <laughs> put a hole in that ship? Right. <laughs> no, yes. We wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Okay, so but, uh, then uh, then you, you said you, you went to Loadmaster School and you had a, a story about that. So, yeah, please tell us. Well, to me, it was a little funny story, uh, but, it you know, it's a true story. And uh, we're sitting in class. Now, you have to understand the Air Force instructor, uh, for those of you that have ever seen that TV series, Baba Black Sheep, and uh, they got that, you know, Sergeant Micklin, the guy with the bull neck and the flat top, you know, with the cigar hanging out of his mouth. Well, back in those days, I mean, this instructor reminded me a lot of him. And he was sitting there, and there was three of us Coast Guard guys in his class of 30. Uh, the other 27 students were all Air Force. And uh, he asked, he, he told us, uh, he said, well, today we're going to study land survival. 
And I looked over at those other two guys, and I said, what's that got to do with loading a C-130, land survival? And uh, so I raised my hand, okay? <laughs> that was the wrong thing to do. I didn't have enough junk on my sleeve to be raising my hand. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, he said, Barry Officer Denton, United States Coast Guard, what's your question? Well, first, he, uh, he said, uh, we're going to talk about land survival. Then he got into, if you're in a survival situation and you see a cow eating berries on a tree does not necessarily mean you can eat those berries. In other words, you got to know your berries because a berry might kill you that won't hurt a cow. And I raised my hand, Petty Officer Denton, United States Coast Guard, what's your question? And I said, well, Sarge, I don't know how you Air Force people think, but us three Coast Guard guys, if we're in that situation, we're not going to eat a tree. We're going to have hamburger and prime rib, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> Of course, he didn't think that was too humorous. The whole crap, but you know, he went he went to the Inso Club that night probably, and they had a big laugh about it. <laughs> he didn't give you any we satisfaction, of course. Yeah, he was trying to make a point, and I messed up his whole point. So, but anyway, yeah. that was my little loadmaster school story. <laughs> and so, what? And so, you're at loadmaster school. You're learning to do what? Oh, you're learning weight and uh, balance. Uh, you're learning uh, fuel consumption. You're learning. Uh, how to load stuff, uh, how to tie down stuff, how the dual rail system works in the C-130, the roller system on the floor that allows you to put pallets in. Okay. Um, so, Mark, you've you've done something similar, right? Yeah. I mean, of course, you had to go through all of that, you know, for, um, you know, working on the ramp and everything else. But, um, you know, it, it's pretty cool that, you know, he was primarily on the C-130s, of course, and I was on more commercial aircraft, but I did have the ch- chance to you know load a few c-130s back in the day but i didn't have to do the weight and balance they just told me you know what went where and all that stuff so right okay all i did was load it yeah we would we would get into some situations jason um where you had to be pretty much spot on because uh, these C-130s that the Coast Guard uh, and some of the places the Coast Guard goes to, especially up in Alaska, those little little strips, you got to have it pretty much on. And, uh, of course, the pilot is the final say. You know, he, he has to sign off on it. Uh, but, you know, you got some short fields up there. And mm-hmm. and you got to be able to stop the plane. You got to be able to get it off the ground. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so you got to be pretty spot on of what you're doing it, it's uh and you use a slide rule and you know that kind of stuff so it, it's interesting it was a good school i enjoyed school okay cool i'd love to hear more stories uh, about the your days working on the c-130 mark showed me a, a national geographic article back in from back in february of 1984 i think mark yeah uh that you were in and you were dropping something onto an iceberg in the north atlantic um and also notable in that edition were guinea pigs and sheepdogs, in case anyone's interested in looking that up. Uh, but, Neil, you were <laughs> what were you guys doing up there? I mean, what, why were you dropping uh, equipment onto icebergs? Well, the International Ice Patrol started uh, right after the Titanic sank in 1912. And um, countries from uh, various parts of the world that have interest, shipping interest in the North Atlantic uh, from what I understand, they pitch in and, and help pay for the ice patrols. And the Coast Guard, U.S. Coast Guard, is tasked uh, with the actual ice patrol. Uh, our ice observing, uh, I, well, back when I was in, I'm not sure where it is now, but back when I was in, the uh, 
ICE observers uh, unit was in New York City or somewhere around New York, New York or somewhere like that. But um, what we did is we would go up and, and uh, fly, and most of the time we based out of St. John's, Newfoundland. And we would go fly and uh, look for icebergs. And we had uh, metal dart, these big old heavy metal darts, uh, and attached to one end of it would be uh, a buoy uh, that would transmit signals to a satellite, which would transmit from the satellite back to the ice. Well, we called them ice picks, but ice observer uh, place. and it would track the buoy, it, it would track the drift. And therefore, these people could put out uh, to the maritime uh, interests where the birds were. And they're floating or they're drifting. And, you know, they'd just be able to calculate all that stuff with 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 satellite and, and uh, buoys. And the purpose of the dart, uh, it didn't, obviously, it didn't go below the, to the bottom of the ocean. It, we, the purpose of it was to stick into an iceberg and hold the buoy in place, and so it drifted along with the iceberg. Now, keep in mind, uh, and you can do this at home, you take a glass of water and take an ice cube and put it in a glass of water, and what you see floating is the same as what an iceberg it is. In other words, you see a, a big, very big iceberg, you're only seeing one-tenth of that iceberg. Nine-tenths of it is underwater. Right. So these bergs are humongous and uh like i said all this started when the titanic uh sank and there's also a, a system we used to use where we would find a bird and we had these big gallon glass jars of red dye and we would also drop this dye n- not necessarily on the same buoy that we uh, hit with the dart but we would drop this red dye on the buoy to mark it and We'd go back and, of course, the the navigator would, you know, would plot where it is. And we'd go back the next day or two and find it again and see how far it drifted and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it it was very interesting. It was very cold, but it was uh, was very (laughs) cold out there with the ramp and door open. So when when Um, you're dropping uh, these things, what what was the – what – who decided when and like how how high were you flying? Uh, who who told you when to drop it? Was that up to you guys, or was that up to the the pilot, or was it a combination? How'd that work? Well, the pilot had to tell us when to drop because see he sees where we're going. We only see where we've been uh, sitting in the back. So uh, he tells us there's there's a, a fifteen second standby, a ten second standby, a five second standby, and then the command drop drop drop. And that's when everything heads out the back door or out the ramp. Um, and, of course, you know, the buoy uh, was lowered by uh, um, by a parachute, uh, but it, it, it was about 200 feet off the ground, I would imagine. I, I can't really remember. I know a message block dropped to a boat was 50 feet off the ground, off the water, and that's kind of hairy. Wow. But, uh, but normal drop altitude is around 200 feet. Okay. Did you ever miss? I didn't miss. Pilot did. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the that's the kind of comment that proves that you're Mark's dad. <laughs> you know, you know how I am, Jason, about analogies, and 
And just to kind of reiterate what he talked about with the iceberg, how you see one-tenth of it above the surface and the other nine-tenths below it, that's kind of like me being in a body of water, you know, in a pool. <laughs> one-tenth you see above the water, the other nine-tenths <laughs> is like, definitely below it. You're like a you're like a alligator. You just see your eyes and nose poking up. <laughs> that's pretty much it. I'm just there just for, for breathing. Now, the problem is I can't scuba dive anymore because I'm too damn buoyant. <laughs> so, and, you know, they'd have to strap anvils to my belt to get me to go below the surface. Oh, man. So, now, the, yeah, the, guinea so pig, the guinea pig, the guinea pigs and the sheep dogs were part of, not part of the International Ice Patrol or anything due to Coast Guard. They were just part of that particular edition of uh, National Geographic. And uh, that was basically like a kid's edition, I think. But, uh, that's what the the pigs and the sheep dogs are all about. <laughs> okay, yeah, I thought that was thought that was cool. Now uh, the guy that's in the article with Ray Stalvey, we still talk to him today. Oh yeah, yeah. My wife and I went to Elizabeth City a couple of years ago and stayed with Ray and his wife and uh, his granddaughter. Oh no way. Uh, yeah, we we still we still stay in touch. Ray and I, we started out as third class together, and uh, then once we left Elizabeth City, he, we got separated. But you know we. We finally got back in touch with each other, and everything's great. Awesome, very cool. Do you do you stay in touch with many of your um, what would you call comrades from the uh, Coast Guard? Oh. oh, absolutely. I got a bunch of them on Facebook, and uh, uh, every year they have a Coast Guard reunion um, in Elizabeth City for anyone that's ever been stationed in Elizabeth City. And uh, I see a lot of them then. I usually go every other year. Because you know it's about 950 miles from Mobile to Elizabeth City, so okay. we don't go every year, but we try to go at least every other year. Very cool. What were what were some other highlights that you you could tell us about working on the C-130? Mm. Highlights? I don't know. I've been all well. I think a good highlight was when I was on a gate project and we flew over to uh, Europe and. Uh, 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 of course, you get over there and you got crew rest and everything. I went to London and uh, we went down to Ireland. I went to Balarney Castle and, you know, I've, I've seen quite a bit of the world. Um, and then, uh, you know, we landed in Dakar, Africa, and uh, uh, it's just a different kind of life over there. I mean, you know, I don't mean to sound vulgar, but, but since we got off the airplane in Dakar, it, you know, it smelled like an outhouse to me. Hmm. But... Uh, uh, anyway, you walk down the street and these little kids come up to you and shoe shine, you know, quarter or whatever. And you got on those back in those days, you know, guy, a lot of guys wore hush puppies. I don't know. That's probably way before your time, but you know, you, you say, you don't shine these, you know, this is kind of suede you know? right. <laughs> and they just wouldn't leave you alone. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I've had a lot of highlights, uh, up in, uh, Greenland and, um, cross the arctic circle and we go through what we call a blue nose initiation they gag your you know gap your hair and then they put in the, they break these ink pens and rub blue ink all over your permanent ink all over your nose <laughs> for the next two weeks the rest of the trip you're walking around with a blue nose they call it a blue nose initiation because nice. you run above the arctic circle <laughs> <laughs> but uh our uh, community actually asked um, a lot of great questions this time, so I've saved um, – instead of me asking them, we're, we're going to ask them and give credit where credit's due. So um, let's get into that if you don't mind. We'll we'll ask some of our community questions. And uh, actually, before okay. we do that, 
uh, Mark, let's uh, take a little break and hear about Live Flight app for a second. All right. Mark, have you heard of Live Flight for Infinite Flight? Yeah, man. I've used it to track flights and to see which regions and airports are busy before, you know, planning my flight. Right. Well, as you probably know, a new version of Live Flight is now available at liveflightapp.com. This new version is better than ever and has been rebuilt from the ground up. With the new design, more flight stats, a search feature, and airport information, tracking and planning your flight is easier than ever. Oh, man, I know. And now with the new downloadable KML files, you can download your flight data to any Earth browser, such as Google Earth. It's so cool. Absolutely. And if that wasn't enough, you can now subscribe to Live Flight Horizon, a new service for only $1.99 a month that provides real-time, worldwide airport information such as weather, runway data, and charts. It also allows you to search for flights, active ATC frequencies, and airports. And as a Live Flight Horizon subscriber, you'll also get much longer online sessions, and you'll be helping Cam to keep developing and improving this great app. So guys, make sure you head over to liveflightapp.com to give it a try, and also subscribe to Live Flight Horizon. It will make your infinite flight experience so much better. And now back to the podcast. So let's take a few forum questions here. Um, Sam S. says, uh, Hi, Neil. You were stationed with my late grandfather at the Clearwater Base in St. Pete, Florida. Um, What did an average day in a C-130 entail for you? Well, uh, an average day at a C-130 unit is, all right, when you're not flying, you're working on them. Um, and when you're flying, you're working in them. <laughs> you know, I know that sounds kind of crazy. But uh, an average day, well, in my rating, I was a aviation survival, and we were in charge of the oxygen systems on them and uh, the wing rafts and engine fire bottles and, you know, just all kind of different stuff. Anything to do with life support, uh, we had to get out there and uh, either repair it or maintain it. Um, uh, keep it in operational order. Uh, when you're flying, uh, I mean, it's you're pretty much you, you got to have your mind on what you're doing, obviously. And uh, uh, th- there are long flights where the crew can take breaks. Um, I remember, and I don't know if Mark's told you or not before, but uh, my favorite position was in between the wheel wells. I'd string a hammock up there on these 14-hour flights, <laughs> <laughs> and that's some that's some of the best sleep in the world. I bet <laughs> those droning those droning engines just keep you lulled to sleep, you know. And, uh, and of course, you know the the crew would switch out and take naps or whatever. But uh, the ones that were awake were uh, busy with their duties. Um, I don't know. That's kind of a hard question about what it entails. Well, what I'm uh, hearing just, from yeah, you everybody is did their yeah. What, what I'm hearing from you is that there there is, wasn't really necessarily an average day because you could be doing one thing that's different you know, the next day. Oh yeah. Every mission was different. Um, you know, it, it depended on the mission as to what that day entails on the C-130. Um, it could be a SAR case or a drug interdiction. We've hauled around, uh, you know, DEA agents and, um, you know, it, it just depends on what the mission is, is depending on what you're doing that day. Okay. Awesome. Stephen Walker, 109, uh, who Stevens, uh, one of our ATC guys here at uh, IFATC, and he says, when flying the C-130 for the Coast Guard, what was the most interesting or challenging day of your career? Did anything stand out to you? 
Well, yeah, the explosion of the uh, shuttle Challenger. I was stationed in Clearwater. Uh, I never will forget as long as I live. We were just coming out of the mess hall uh, in Clearwater, and they announced uh, anything that could get airborne was going to get airborne. And uh, from where we were in Clearwater, you could actually look over to the east, and you could see the plume, uh, the smoke trail, and the the way it uh i don't know what you call bowed out or whatever you could actually see that so uh i you know hurried over to the shop got flight suit on we threw in extra life rafts and we i mean anything we could grab we put in these c-130s and everything that would get off the ground was airborne and uh that was a very challenging day um you know looking for debris and uh, stuff of that nature but i would have to say that that was that was very challenging and uh, an interesting day was uh when frederick came through mobile we were stationed in elizabeth city and we flew of course mobile was just about gone uh, and we flew to miami and picked up a c-130 full of block ice now I'm going to tell you something. It gets cold in that airplane when you're hauling block ice. <laughs> the whole the whole crew, uh, we had to all wear Arctic Parkers, you know, like we were in Alaska because if not, I mean, they could, you couldn't turn the heaters on because it would melt the ice. So, right, right. <laughs> yeah, you had to fly. And we flew from Miami to uh, Mobile and, and unloaded. To me, that was very satisfying because I knew that, you know, we were helping out a community and a Coast Guard uh, base at the same time. Now, I don't think the Coast Guard, I don't think that ice was, was mainly for the Coast Guard. I think it was taken, you know, to the to the different places like Salvation Army and places like that, and they divvied it out, you know, from there. But uh, okay. that, that was a very satisfying mission. Yeah, Tell them about the cool. uh, Bahama trip. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we were in the Bahamas, and... Uh, uh, they didn't have any, you're talking about the static ports? Yeah. yeah. They didn't have any static ports on the ramp for uh, for the grounding wires from the fuel truck. And so I took one of the grounding wires and I hooked the prop, just clipped it onto the prop. And it, I mean, you, you got to remember now on these airplanes, uh, it's not, the paint isn't brand new. So <laughs> there was a lot of bare metal on these props. Okay. But I clipped it on, I clipped it on the prop and the little fuel guy came out, no, no good, no good, won't work, wooden prop. I said, what? He said, no good, no good, wooden prop, no ground. I said, you go there and bang your head on that prop, tell me it's wood. <laughs> he went over there and went, ding, ding, ding. He said, good ground, good ground. <laughs> but that was only after they let him off the plane. They wouldn't let him off the plane for the longest time. Yeah. They thought the uh, the wing tanks were actually bombs on the C-130. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. yeah, I forgot about it. Yeah. Yeah, they thought the wing tank for bombs, and we had to go over there with a pogo stick and get a little fuel out of the bottom of it and show them that it was fuel and they're not bombs. Dang. But. Interesting. Uh, David Lockwood asked um, for Neil in the Coast Guard, what was the a typical crew complement for the C-130? Which I thought was a cool question. What? Well, when I was in, uh, I was in with the B, E, and Hs. I, I was out way before the Js came in, and... Uh, on the B, E, and H, the crew complement was seven. Um, you had a pilot, co-pilot, flight engineer, radio, radar, and uh, loadmaster, uh, dropmaster, and a scanner. Okay. Normally, the loadmaster, dropmaster is the same guy because 
and the sequence they used to do is you had to become a drop master, then become a load master. So uh, that was generally the same guy did both roles. But the, and then the scanner, you know, new guy coming in, uh, working his way up. So a, a crew complement for those three models were seven. I'm I'm thinking the J is like five. I know they don't have a flight engineer, and I think they did away with either radio or they still have the navigator. Okay. They still got a navigator. Okay. Yeah. Well then they did away with the radio, but the navigator radio I mean, usually the same person. So, uh, and then there's just one guy in the back, which is going to be the load master drop master. So it went from seven to five and I've heard a lot of good and, and bad about that. Uh, you know, cause you know, if you're off somewhere in a distant place and you got a problem, most of these pilots don't know how to fix what they fly. But, uh, uh, I guess their thinking is, um, you know, if they got to have a new engine, they're going to send a maintenance crew with it anyway. Uh, but back when I was in, the flight engineer did a lot of that, you know. Uh, and, of course, the crew assisted the flight engineer. But if you don't have the flight engineer, uh, they're going to have to get outside help, you know, either from home base or another air station close by. But uh, and, and in my rating, ASM, with, you know, Aviation Survivalman, uh, they don't even have those on C-130s anymore. Now they're all rescue swimmers. Um, so I, I was in at the right time, you know. Cool. Uh, this next one is actually for Mark. Uh, David is wondering, uh, Mark, when you're flying in infinite flight, do you prefer to fly using the cockpit view or the just the HUD? No, I just always fly with the HUD view. <clears throat> I mean, it's the cockpit view is cool, but um, I don't know. For me, the positioning... Um, you know, of the view, I, I really don't like it, and it's kind of cumbersome to pan around um, to do everything. So I just I use two views. I either use the HUD view or the external chase view. Okay. So one of the yeah two. yeah the um, the new airplane is coming with a uh, huge number of new cameras. Yeah, we got a lot of to say cameras, that, but, uh, a lot of new views on this. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the cockpit view is good for, I'm kind of in the same boat. The, the cockpit view is good for taking screenshots. If you're going to put something on Instagram or, you know, kind of going for a little yeah, realism. I'll turn or the HUD off. Yeah. I'll turn the HUD off and, uh, you know, do some screenshots or whatever. But, um, but other than that, I, uh, I strictly fly with the HUD. Yeah. Okay. Uh, talking ribs with two Z's. Uh, as asking, what is the best view? Uh, this is for Neil. What's the best view you've ever seen from the air? Well, short answer, I'd have to say runway. But uh, <laughs> from here, <laughs> well, you have to remember now, Jason, I've been all over the world, so I've seen a lot of good views. Uh, I, I, I really like flying around mountains. Uh, well, not around mountains, but in the mountain areas. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of beautiful scenery with snow caps and stuff like that but uh uh so it's hard to say what's the best view i like them all really yeah. i mean except for a thunderstorm sitting outside the window that's that's not very nice and i've been in several of those and that right. is some scary stuff yeah or too much fog the the uh yeah. i gotta say the view just in that uh magazine clipping that mark showed me from 84 that that iceberg view is incredible mm -hmm. Oh, yes, yes. That, it, it's nice. To, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Kenny is asking, he says, a uh, question from a fellow Coastie. 
Um, I'm assuming you know what that means. Uh, right. Were you on the Herc during the use of Jado? Yes, I was. Are you uh, really? I was on the 1504. Yeah, I was on the 1504 uh, at an air show in Pensacola. And at that time, we used uh, six bottles, three on each side. Uh, Jado, it's a kick in the pants. Um, you know, when the pilot rotates... <laughs> When the pilot rotates and he punches those Jado bottles, uh, each bottle is putting out a thousand pounds of thrust for 15 seconds. Oh wow! And it's there's a lot of work, a lot of safety issues, um, or a lot of safety checks that you have to go through. First of all, you load the bottles on the ramp, and then uh, you taxi down to the end of the runway, and then uh, I get out or whoever the crew member is gets out and and um, uh, hooks the J- Jado bottles up, and of course you get back in the airplane, and you better strap in. Uh, <laughs> the first day of the, the first day of that air show um, in Pensacola, uh, we did it, and the pilot said, "Okay, now you two guys in the back, I want each one of you to get at a paratroop door, and let me know if a bottle does not light off." Well, okay, you know I've never been on one before, so I'm standing there at the J- at the, at the paratroop door. And when he punches that thing, next thing I know, me and this other guy are picking ourselves up off the cargo ramp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I told the pilot uh, when, we, when we got back, I told the pilot, I said, listen, I said, tomorrow when we do this, you're just going to have to figure it out on your own. And you'll feel it because the plane will sway one way or the other if they all don't light off. But uh, And, you know, after all that work and everything, Jason, you know what impressed the crowd the most at that air show? That the, was the, cap- go ahead. the capability of that airplane backing up into its parking spot. Oh, the no reverse. way. And, uh, yeah, that, that, that's what the feedback was. That's what they enjoyed the most. They didn't know a plane could do that or a prop plane could do that anyway. Man, the, but, the uh, footage that I've seen of the uh, Jado in use is incredible. I didn't even. Uh, it, it was only a little while ago that I learned about this. It was this was even a thing, and it was, it was like, wow, that mm-hmm. looks incredibly uh, unsafe. <laughs> I guess is what I first thought. But what well, it was. So you're they're basically strapping rockets to the C-130 is what they're doing, right? That's correct, and that's usually for a heavy load on a short field. That's that's their purpose. But okay. uh, and they did experiment but... with it. Um, a little bit doing um, where they they had to bring the thing in with virtually nowhere to take off and land, but that wasn't incredibly right, successful. Right. Yeah, I know the uh, Air Force or the Navy also used it uh, in the Arctic with the one uh, thirties that were on skis. Yeah, yeah. Um, they used it to you know help the one uh, thirty get airborne. So um, you know trying to take off from ice and all that. You know, that that ice and snow adds a lot of friction to the tires, so mm. they had to use the Jato rockets. Yeah. Cool. Uh, but they don't even, uh, planes nowadays don't, or the C-130s they're building now don't even have the, the Jato mounts. I, I don't even think they have Jato anymore. I, mm. I'm not sure. I don't, not from not from what I was reading. Okay. Yeah, the Blues don't use them. So uh, our buddy Joe has been asking some questions here. And this is the probably the best question of the day. Uh, Neil, did you ever want to take Mark up in the C-130 and throw him out the cargo door? 
Well, uh, Jason, evidently Joe's never met Mark. Um, Mark, Mark, Mark was tying, Mark was tying me up and locking me in the closet when he was 15. So oh, <laughs> every time Mark came around at one thirty, I put my gunner's belt on, but, uh, but no, his mama would have probably got on me for that. So I didn't, didn't ever think about doing that. Did, uh, Mark let you fly the C-130 in infinite flight yet? And, uh, if so, what did you think? Well, uh, what crash mean? I, I got that warning. <laughs> no, that, that's not a warning. That just means game over. <laughs> yeah, Reset the parking. <laughs> you heard the glass shatter. Well, I was playing on his iPad. I was playing on his iPad, and I'm not used to it. But... Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, he, he took off fine. It was the landing part that he had the issue with. <laughs> he's then, like, he said, Mark. He said, now y'all need to fix this response on this i said what do you mean he said it won't turn it's taking too much effort to turn this thing and so i i, I tapped it because you know i have everything disappear on my screen after two seconds right i said well well dad you got the autopilot set with the heading but uh you, you you got the <laughs> heading set on the autopilot so, so i disengaged that and i said here now try oh okay okay now it works a little bit better yeah <laughs> and then joe also wanted to know uh how you feel about canadians and now you, I now we've learned that you've worked with lots of them. Oh yeah, I've I've learned, I've worked with a lot of Canadians. Well, are Newfoundlanders considered? I guess they're considered Canadians, aren't they? Yeah, we consider them Canadians. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, they got a different way of thinking than I do. I mean, we were up there one time and we were trying to buy a lobster to bring back to the to uh, Elizabeth City, and uh, I asked one of the locals. I said, "Well, how much is it a pound?" He said, "We don't sell it by the pound. We sell it by the each." I said, well, how much is it each? He said, $10 a pound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's a Newfoundlander yeah, telling you that. That's not that's not that's representation. Right. <laughs> See, now the Newfoundlanders are separate. <laughs> Jason's going to separate them from the Canadians. Now that yeah. you told that well, story. Yeah. I, I don't mean... Uh, I don't. I don't mean to sound in, uh, politically incorrect or anything, but uh, if this election hadn't gone right, my wife and I were going to be looking at real estate in Canada. <laughs> I told. Uh, I told Mark my futon's ready for him whenever he decides. But you got to leave your guns at home. Yeah, that's why I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So also the OP was asking. Um, also, and we've we've talked about this already. What was your most uh, memorable flight and why? So we kind of. We kind of discussed that in the uh, interesting and challenging day of your career. Right. Right. So, um, <clears throat> lastly, uh, Emirates Life is the screen name. He says, My father also flew the C 130. Uh, glad to know I'm not the only one. My father was part of the medic group. Uh, he's currently 73 and has plenty of stories to tell. Uh, my question, however, is what is the worst turbulence you ever have received while flying in it? Well, just about any, um, just about any storm, uh, or if you hit an unexpected air pocket, uh, I'll, the, I'll be honest with you, the worst movement I've ever been in was when I was on the Cherokee and rode that hurricane out. Um, the, you know, the thing about seasickness is you can't get away from it. Air sickness, you can climb out of it or, or fly away from it. Um, but I have never been as sick in my life as I was on that day on the Cutter Cherokee. Uh, and, uh, I mean, air, air turbulence and stuff like that cannot compare to 
riding a 205-foot ship out in the middle of a hurricane. But uh, uh, I don't know. I, I guess just thunderstorms and, and uh, you know, sometimes you have to get in that rough weather uh, to, to accomplish your mission because, believe it or not, most of the people we go searching for is because of rough weather. And we're out there in the middle of it trying to find them. Right. And, uh, you know, we get bounced around pretty good. Now, of course, the, the hurricane hunters, the Air Force C-130s, uh, they're in it, you know, all the time, too. But uh, uh, I don't know. It, it, turbulence and uh, air pockets is about, you know, it's, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I can't remember any time that I've gotten off the C-130 and said I'm never getting back on it. <laughs> oh, there you go. It was never but, that bad then. No, it's never it wasn't that it wasn't anything like it was on it on that ship no okay uh neil and mark anything either of you want to add before we go today no nothing that i can think of today man i just glad i was able to get my dad uh you know on for the flight cast and you know and i've told you several times and other people you know i'm just i'm proud of what he did i'm proud of his career in the coast guard and for his you know time that he served and you know just proud to call him my father so, uh, dad, I appreciate you taking time out of your retirement life to, uh, to do this with us today. Well, it's really been a joy. I appreciate y'all asking me on. Well, thanks for being here. We sincerely appreciate it. That was retired U.S. Coast Guard Senior Chief Neil Denton, and he joined us today with Mark from Mobile, Alabama. Guys, thanks as always for listening, and if you haven't already, head over to the App Store or Google Play and download Infinite Flight. For more of the podcast, you can visit our website and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or YouTube. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash flightcastaudio, on Twitter and Instagram at flightcastaudio. Flightcast is brought to you by Linkhouse Media on the web at linkhousemedia.com. We can always use your help to keep the podcast rolling, and a few ways to do that are by clicking the donate button at the bottom of our website or by heading to flightcast.audio slash shop to buy your very own Flightcast gear. And just in time for the holidays, grab your new Flightcast hoodie, and there is still time to get that before Christmas. To cover the fine print, Flightcast is not affiliated with Infinite Flight or Flying Development Studio. I'm Jason Rosewell. Thanks for listening, and happy landings. Thank you.